This is Proxilla Radio, the UK's first dedicated progressive rock music radio network. You're listening to Tabletop Genesis, a podcast by Genesis fans for Genesis fans. Hello and welcome to Tabletop Genesis. Uh, this is Mike Lord, your host. This is Ellie. Hello. This is Simon. Stacy. This is Tom. Tom eighty four. <laughs> like wow, what you wow. did there. Uh-huh. And uh, we are going to be discussing Phil's first solo album, Face Value. He'd done some albums with Brand X, which don't count as solo albums, of course, but they were separate from Genesis. And so this is going to be jumping in to Phil's debut as a solo artist. Does anyone want to chat first before we jump into the Wikipedian and with Simon to talk about the, how the album affected them? Um, it feels like part of the landscape. Almost, almost overlooked because it's so obvious. Oh, right. In the Air Tonight made such a big splash that sometimes it's, and Phil says this in interviews, that it's easy to forget about the rest of the album. Yeah. I think a good way to look at it is it was an obvious surprise. Hmm. That's like, a great it, way of describing it. Yeah. It was kind of like, I think it took everyone by surprise that here was this drummer who became lead singer for a few years. He puts out a solo album and it's a huge success, but th- that's who Phil was. He was a drummer who's coming into his own as a writer. So it, obvi- it was kind of obvious that it would be a success, but as I said, it, it probably took everyone by, like, what the hell just happened? <laughs> <laughs> Especially Tony and Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And that, you know, that makes me think, um, something I was talking um, to Simon about earlier was, of all the, the members of Genesis, and you think about their first solo album, mm-hmm. this is the farthest from Genesis sure. um, I right. think you're going to get. I, I, ma- I tried to make the argument that that makes it the most progressive, <laughs> but I was shot down. <laughs> I think it's also one of the one something to note that he was the last member of Genesis to yeah. do a solo album. Very good. Well, let's jump into the Wikipedia review, Simon, as our resident Wikipedian. Okie dokie. Uh, glasses are on. Uh, face value is the debut solo album by English recording artist Phil Collins, released in February of 1981 on the Virgin label internationally and Atlantic Records in North America. It was released in the UK 11 days after his 30th birthday. The album includes the hit single In the Air Tonight, whose dark mood was inspired by the fallout of Colin's first marriage with his wife Andrea. The reissued version's cover art is taken in the same fashion as the originals, except it features a present-day Collins instead. I say present-day Collins because if you're listening to this 20 years in the future, it isn't present-day Phil Collins. Although he looks damn good for an 80-year-old. Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. This is, uh, this is an interesting album for me personally just because I never actually owned a copy of this until about 2008 or 2009 or so. Wow. Yeah, it was one of those albums that I think was just so ubiquitous my brother, I believe, had a copy, maybe a cassette tape of it, so I heard it a lot. And again, on MTV and the radio, I heard all the all the normal tracks that you would hear. But I just didn't... It, I never felt the need to get it, although I bought other solo albums of films. I just never went back to buy it until, until about 2008, 2009 or so. 
And so I kind of have uh, an approach to this album that a lot of it is, is still very fresh to me. Oh, well, that's good. So yeah. that may come out in some of the comments. Is yeah. this your life's greatest regret? <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. Uh, no. <laughs> say yes. That's a whole other show. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, and it may not be Genesis related. <laughs> Welcome to Tabletop Regrets. <laughs> That's yeah. right. <laughs> yeah, for me too. I think I owned a CD. Uh, yeah, a CD instead of a cassette. I I might have had some some songs recorded on a cassette. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the sometime in the eighties, but I think I bought the CDs at some point in the two thousands. Okay. I love this album, but it just yeah, and you probably heard more of it probably than I did, just because your your love of Phil Collins. <laughs> <laughs> it's all right, girl. Fly that flag. That's right. <laughs> we all love Phil on this podcast. Yeah. I think we can say this is a safe place. Yes. Okay. <laughs> I had like a different experience than you guys um, because I was a Phil fan first before Genesis, mm-hmm. as I've mentioned before. So I I got a copy of this cassette in 85, 86, okay. because I got No Jacket Required. That was mm-hmm. my first foray into this universe. And so I went back and I got Hello, I Must Be Going and Face Value. So yeah, I've been an avid listener of this album for many years. This is in your DNA. <laughs> this is in my DNA now. Yeah, I it's uh, it's it's part of that soundtrack of my life. And- All right, well, we'll move on now with the first track, which you might might have heard. It's called In the Air Tonight. Thank you. 
All right. <laughs> I think you have to do that in association with this song because it is, again, my notes on this, I just started out saying iconic because it really is, you know, if you're looking for what most people out there probably identify with Phil Collins, it's this track. I've got a great story. A friend of mine I used to work with uh, back in England, he used to live with a guy and uh, this guy had a, a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. Whenever they had a um, uh, an argument, he would listen to this song incessantly in the house, <laughs> which used to drive my friend absolutely crazy. It's, it's something people use. Athletes use it to get pumped up before at games. You know, they play it everywhere. So, you know, this song has, you know, been identified with Phil in for years now. I think it's one of probably the best rock songs. I, I, probably if you had like mm-hmm. a top 50, it would definitely figure in there somewhere. And you figure for a track that was released in 1981, right. 35 years later, mm-hmm. it doesn't sound like an 80, it doesn't sound like an 80s track. Right. It's like a timeless track. There's nothing you could pinpoint to it. Maybe, I don't know. I maybe, would take issue with that. Maybe, oh, maybe yeah. the drum machine a little bit you could mm-hmm. take issue. But I mean, that track could come out today and be number one single. Sure. I certainly believe that it's one of the keystones to the sound of the 80s, when it, mm-hmm. certainly when it comes to music. I mean, let's face it, Phil Collins, amongst a handful of artists, kind of owned the 80s oh, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Like he was, uh, whenever I think of uh, the 80s, I, I, I think of, of, of me failing to get off with girls and Phil Collins. Really. <laughs> <laughs> There's a common there, right? Yes. <laughs> yes. 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 Because, you know, this is, again, you know, even though I had not listened to this album as a whole, I heard this song all the time and loved the video when I was a kid on watching it on MTV. But listening to it now, trying to kind of, you know, back away from it a bit, there, this is an incredibly well-structured, well-arranged, you know, I love the little kind of quiet piano at the start, just kind of ding, 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 ding. There's a lot of very, actually, there's not a lot. There's very subtle things going on in the background here that just add in that first, you know, three, three and a half minutes to this air, this moody air of, you know, not quite sure what's going on here. Yeah, it's like a tension beneath the surface yeah. feel yeah. to it until you finally get to that right. that iconic drum yeah. uh, dumb bit there where he's just kind of letting it all out. Right. And, yeah. and, and I imagine, you know, I, I can't remember the first time I heard this song, but, you know, when you hear it, even now, that's surprising when it happens. You know it's coming, but it's just, it's... It's so kind It's anticipatory. Of, yeah, exactly. And there's a lot of little cool kind of spooky things through the song, some of the vocal treatments, the way it kind of closes that. There's like, a I of, remember. Yeah, there's an instrument called a vocoder, yeah. which um, uh, bands like ELO and Daft Punk have popularized mm. an awful lot. Um, and uh, and apparently that's... Well, in fact, actually, I know. I was, I was listening to it. It's actually all over this album, Vocoder. It's the one where you, you, can, you can actually speak into a microphone Mm-hmm. and play a synthesizer and it will use your vowel sounds mm-hmm. to morph the sound of the synthesizer right. a lot of people use it to sort of like do faux backing vocals sure. and uh, it is definitely used to great effect in this song there's you know this anger going on this sort of subtle you know oh I'm having a rough time and then this drum solo comes in and... if you've never heard the song you're like whoa okay <laughs> recently on uh Phil was interviewed with by Dan Rather for his show, The Big Interview, and he called that moment the face hugger moment, like an alien that right. you know, all of a sudden <laughs> right. slams on your face. That's 
how the drums came in. And right. I think he had also mentioned that Ahmet Erdogan said, well, why don't you have drums throughout it? Like have a little bit of, you know, don't have that as the only one, but you, you can't not have that moment be the face hugger moment. It's right. yeah. it's kind of like it, it reminds me of when, like Steven Spielberg has always talked about Jaws and, mm-hmm. and how the one regret he has with it is he wanted the big shocking moment for the audience to be when the shark first comes out of the water, you right. know, on the boat. But unfortunately, he said he put in the scene earlier in the movie where a diver is underwater and a head comes out of a hole in a boat. Right. And he said he wished he hadn't done that because that was the first scare of the audience. He wished he had waited until the very end to sure. have the shark come out. And that kind of reminds me of this. It's like, you know, you can't have drums throughout it. Just right. you have to have the audience not suspecting it. And all of a sudden, boom, they come in and like you're like, whoa. And I think that's what people remember about this song is that right. it's, it's going along and all of a sudden your life is turned upside down by this drum fill. <laughs> yeah, actually, it was funny because last night we were listening to the album and our cat was sitting in our laps yes. and she was like, mm, wait, no, in the air tonight until the drum solo came. And she was like, oh. Yes, even, it <laughs> and start, even startled the cat. She <laughs> <laughs> was like, woo, what's the that? The cat startling. Yes, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and when he does this live, it just takes it up a whole nother level. Mm-hmm. And I love um, the live version of this, um, particularly in the reissues that sure. version is is fantastic um and i know like i've seen him live a few times and he does that he kind of teases the audience he mm. kind of hovers around the um drum kit as the solo is approaching you're mm. like anticipating it and looking for it and uh yeah it just it does it gives you a rush it's like mm. the payoff uh, of that song I think it's one of the best live song endings ever. Sure. It's up there with um, the cinema show on Seconds Out for me. <laughs> um, so it's fantastic. We just kind of they just kind of go into this uh, long riff for a while. And then he sort of shudders to a halt. Yeah, yeah. The other thing that I, I notice is that. The drum fill is so iconic. If you look back at Live Aid, Mm -hmm. when Phil Collins played uh, effectively both shows, played Mm -hmm. once in Wembley and once in Philadelphia, when he played this song, he got to that moment where the drum riff was supposed to hit in and he stopped playing and the audience went, do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do-do. In that second half of the song, once the drums kick in, again, we were playing it fairly loud last night, you know, there's there's great bass in there. You know, I think it's John Giblin on this track, and he just, you know, it, it didn't, everything in this song fits it perfectly. And just, you know, it continues to feel spooky and atmospheric even when the drums are in there. And, and I just think that this is one of those tracks that, as Simon said before, really kind of set the stage for the 80s. But it's also one of these songs that you can't really imitate this song. Because once you've done that, if you do it again, people say, oh, well, that's in the air tonight. You know, yeah. what's the difference there? You know, so it's, 
it's a very you can't repeat yourself with this song. I think much. yeah, a lot. Even looking across all of uh, Phil's songs, across <sighs> all his albums, this is the one that stands on its own the mm-hmm. most, and it's in a class of its own. You mm-hmm. know, it's not like anything else he's ever done. And it's a first track on the album. Yeah, you know, yes. this is. You know, you so it was all downhill. Well, you know, we've we've talked previously about you know first tracks being kind of a yeah. statement of intent, yeah. Yeah. and I think that you know on this album, what else could have been a first track? You know, this kind of says you know you know me from Genesis, maybe even you know me from Brand X or other things, or you see me on liner notes for Brian Eno albums or whatever. But here's what I'm about: I'm gonna lull you in. With this kind of moody atmosphere thing, and then face hugger right in the face for you, <laughs> and that's you know again it, it, he doesn't duplicate that, replicate that through the album, but it's it's that modus operandi. I'm going to surprise you with what I do. And also, I think we've also spoken before uh, in the past about Phil's real strength of sequencing albums. Yes. You know, putting them together as an entire entities by looking at the individual pieces and seeing how it flows from beginning to end. A real talent which kind of gets overlooked. The um, thing that Stacey said about it being alive, like it just comes alive when, when you see Phil do it. it. It's just something where like, as soon as you hear the audience hears that drum track, that drum machine, it's mm-hmm. like a hush falls and then a roar because you know what's coming. And almost, you know, second to Phil's drum fill in that live is the first opening strum by Dar- yes, Daryl. That's the guitar. awesome. I, was I just mean, that just say. resonates through the whole arena and you're like, it just grabs you by, you know, the soul yeah. and shakes you. And, I, and the first time I saw him on the, um, uh, the Buck Seriously tour, the first time he then when Daryl strums, they had this spotlight on him, and his entire shadow went up the entire arena hmm. of him going, you know, playing yeah, that guitar, sure. and it was pretty crazy. And then when he plays the drums, I think mm-hmm. a few times he would stand behind them for the first part of the song, then sit. Then I think some tours he would walk to the yeah. drum kit and then sit, and on later tours he would walk towards a place where there was no drum set, and you're mm-hmm. like. What's what's happening? And I think when I saw that for the first time, and I didn't know what was happening. I was starting to freak out. I'm like, he's nowhere near the drums. What's going to happen? And at the very last minute, the drum, a second drum set rises up. He sits down and does the drum fill, mm-hmm. which is amazing. But I, I always think about like you know all the things that could go wrong with that. What happens if it doesn't? What happens? If it's, well, he doesn't <laughs> run to the drums. Yeah, this final tap moment where it stops halfway up. He's, he's got to like, like lean over. <laughs> Then he just goes into the mic. Duh, 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 duh. Yeah. If that's ever happened, we'd love to see that. I was going to say, yes, if there are any uh, tabletop Genesis people out there who might have actually seen something similar happen, let us know. <laughs> yes. The last uh, couple of points I wanted to bring up about this song is that it's, it does mark the first solo instances of Phil's trademark, Oh Lord, mm-hmm. yes. and All My Life, all in one song. Wow. <laughs> and uh, a lot of people have talked about the fact that Phil says he brought this song to Tony and Mike, oh, right. and you know Tony says no, he didn't. Phil says yes, I did. And what would have happened if he did bring it? But I think that's an alternate history that you really can't explore. You know, you can't explore because if it had gone to Genesis, it would have been a completely different right. approach to the song, mm-hmm. differently recorded, produced, and it might not have had the impact that it had as Phil Collins' first solo song. It might not have made the impact that it had if it were a Genesis tune. So it's it's kind of like, for this instance, you can't really do the what ifs. Right. Like Phil took control of it; it was his song. Mm-hmm. Thank goodness they didn't take it 
right. as a band song. Well, well, it's funny because the demos that are out there of this that actually aren't on the the reissue, but I think one was on his website, and there's some might have been a B side or floating around somewhere. Is that the demo is kind of you know one note all the way through? There isn't a big drum break in the middle of it, and you know. I think Phil even said in an interview recently that, oh, you know, if like he says, oh, Tony says I didn't play it for him. But he said, but the demo was very different than what ended up on the album. So, you know, I think that if if he had brought them like the completed track of In the Air Tonight and they said, oh, no, we're not going to use that. That's one thing. But again, this was, you know, the joke of, oh, it's only got three chords in it. You know, playing a demo like this, that's really just the moody atmospheric part. Mm-hmm without real lyrics to it yet and everything, I could see being in a band and saying, oh, you know, let's, let's let's do Misunderstanding and Please Don't Ask. Those are songs. Yeah, or it's just like <laughs> what, the final outcome is so different than the demo. Yeah, he exactly. probably did hear it and was like, well, no, I didn't hear it because it's yeah, so different. Right. Yeah. So. Or maybe Phil played them the rough version, but he had the finished version. Yeah. <laughs> right. He was like, yeah. polish it off somewhere. Cool. So. One of the funny things about the song is that before the days of Google and where you could instantly get information at your fingertips people would kind of knew the friends that I was like the big Genesis Phil Collins fan. So they would ask me about the urban legend that has always surrounded this tune about how (laughs) Phil witnessed some guy not saving someone from drowning. And that guy showed up at one of his concerts in the front row and Phil kept on singing the song to him with this evil glare. Like I know what you did. And you know, these people would ask me, did that really happen? And I was like, well, of course it did. <laughs> I just remember somebody in college said, told me that story. And I was like, well, that doesn't make sense. Because if Phil saw the guy not help somebody who's drowning, Phil didn't help them either. I was like, exactly. I was like, that's a self-indictment of things there, too. I was like, it just doesn't make sense. No, I read this, that he sang this to somebody at a concert, whatever. Da, 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 and it's just like... People can believe do- doofy stuff. I think we know. <laughs> Phil has definitely put the kibosh on yes. that. Anymore, yeah. So. Yeah. All right, we will move on now to This Must Be Love. This is again, you know, after In the Air Tonight, which is, you know, in your face for the second half of the song, this is a very relaxing song, a very romantic song. It's a big switch. Yes. In, yeah. in feel and tone. And I was thinking about that. Well, that's how Genesis opened a lot of their albums. They would have like this big rush of a song and then go into a slightly quieter song, like mm-hmm. 
Dance on a Volcano was followed by Entangled. Right. So they, they, they were, Phil was used to opening with lots of sound and, and in your face and then a quieter kind of mm-hmm. different direction. All right. <laughs> oh, I was going to say it has a great bass line. <laughs> the, I think if I remember correctly, the bass line is actually played by Alfonso Johnson, yeah. who was yeah. one of the guys that was in the running for taking over from uh, Steve Hackett when he left right. the band. If I remember the story right, Alfonso's more of a bass player who to play guitar, but they really wanted a guitarist who to play bass. And I think that, again, you know, it would have been very different with Alfonso there for Genesis. But I think and Alfonso, been... sorry to interrupt, but Alfonso is he's originally known for being the bass player in Weather Report. Yes, is that right? yes. So I'm sure he would have done a great job in Genesis too, but it would have just been a different approach to it with what he was doing. So, but yeah, great bass in this. I think it's a, as Tom said, it's a great contrast to the opening number. To again, you know, if this is Phil's first solo album and he's putting himself out there and saying, okay, you got kind of the the in your face atmospheric rock. And now here's a romantic song for you all. So, you know, like a live set, almost saying, okay, I'm going to show you what I can do now. A sonic palate cleanser, I suppose you could yeah. say. And this is the first time we really see Phil with heart on, uh, you know, Phil heart <laughs> on his sleeve, Collins. Oh. <laughs> no. Be careful. Get your mind out of the gutter, Rochet. <laughs> Yeah, so this, you know, it's his his little love song, and it, the album gets even more personal as you yeah. go into it. But this, he's speaking first person. It's very clear that mm. he's showing emotions, which is not um, something Genesis uh, does very uh, often right. in their <laughs> lyrics. And I, you know, I'm, I'm wondering because, as you know, we've discussed before, um, you know, we've all come into the band late '70s, '80s time period. I'm wondering what fans who got into Genesis at like Foxtrot thought of this song if they heard it. Like this is such a, like a gear shift in terms of, you know, kind of that whole prog rock Genesis universe. Yeah. I mean, I love the song. It's yeah. a beautiful song. It it's is. very simple. Um, it has its place in my music library. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I can imagine that. I don't know if this was after or in the air night. It's kind of rocking. Okay, yeah. get into this. And they get to this track if they're like, oh. <laughs> makes me feel funny well, my, feeling, <laughs> my feeling here is that this this actually speaks to a larger topic which is how fans claim ownership of material that other people have, have created um and i think yeah you're right there could be a number of people out there who genuinely don't like this song because it is so unlike the stuff that they got into earlier on but i think really at the end of the day chill out right mm-hmm. yeah there'll be another song that comes along in exactly three minutes right. that yeah. you might like so give this a try it's so. a nice uh contrast to kind of the the literary lyrics that yeah. dominated genesis uh, up until this point you know there were it was almost like a, a textbook and yeah. phil had to sing from it i bet he was thrilled to finally have the opportunity to just sing what sounded right to him right. Yeah. and didn't lyrics. yeah in his own lyrics and his own voice you know didn't have to have all this like layered meaning and metaphor and difficult words to kind of wrap your mouth around and yes this is great and it suits him it suits his voice it's, it suits his vocal style i you know it's perfect it's a good song yeah. you know i think the bridge is really nice yes. in this track and and that's actually something throughout the album i think that feels very good about you know the verse chorus structure and then just having a bridge that just sets it apart for a little bit so that when you come back to the verse chorus you're like oh okay this is it's basic song structure, but it, it really works on this album for him. Right? It's also one of those tracks which I 
really love for the backing vocals. Mm, sure. The the actual this must be love, and when when he draws out the the this must be love, and this fabulous close harmony that that, that sits there, it's beautifully done. I, I look at Phil Collins' love songs, and he's got a few of them <laughs> in two different camps. There's like the A type love song and the B type love song. This is one of the A type love songs where it's a very simple kind of like a one more night kind mm. of song which is very radio friendly then he has the b which i guess could be ballad too which mm. is a little bit more it's it's you got, you got to really think about it and then and the b type ballads i kind of think of like you know what i mean mm-hmm. or if leasing if it leasing me if leaving me is easy or yeah those kinds of songs are kind of like the b type and yeah. i kind of like not that one is better than the other but I can listen to a song and right away know, okay, that's the A type. That's the B type. Right, okay. And and as Stacy was saying, he is kind of wearing his heart on his sleeve. <laughs> right. And I, a couple of trivia, which I looked up, I believe this is the first time ever on a Genesis, whether it was on a Genesis album or a solo album, that a title of a song included the word love in it. I, right. yeah, I, I maybe it was it the last time. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the last time outside of a Phil album, at least. Right, right. right. And the other thing is is how you say that he does a lot of these songs in the first person. It's very right. personal. I mean, just alone just alone on the second side, there's four songs that have I or me in it. I missed again. You know what I mean. I'm not moving. If leave, leaving me is easy. And up until this point, Genesis had only had four songs all together, which had either I or me in it. Oh, okay. I think, again, it comes back to, I mean, Phil has said in numerous interviews exactly how um, autobiographical, in a yeah. lot of ways, this is. Um, the thing that I love about putting um, this song directly after In The Air Tonight is that they are, one is looking in almost like to the past and this one is like turning it's on his head and looking to the future and i think that it, it's almost the perfect single an a side and b yeah. side putting those two together and it, it kind of encapsulates certainly for phil at this point mm-hmm. in his life the kind of edges of where he would write in the future you know the, the dark and the deep and the moody mm-hmm. and the heartfelt i mean there's a because uh, they're both in him. Yeah. exactly yeah. right yeah and then this is the other thing that really gets me about phil collins lyrics though because mm-hmm. phil had said in the past that the vocals were there just to round out the top line the tune right. um and the groove and, and the lyrics didn't mean a huge amount until obviously he started writing them mm-hmm. and i will say that one of the things you can you can never say about uh, Phil Collins when when he sings something, he means it. Right. Going back to I think what Stacy was saying, or maybe Simon about the you know the owner fans ownership of music, and I think that emotional ownership is what we're talking about here. Yeah. And so I think that for me, what I see is that, and I, this is something that I've kind of come to as I've gotten older around some of these some of acts and some music is that. My mentality now is if the artist put this on the album, they put it on there for a reason. And maybe I need to think about that a little bit more instead of just being like, oh, this sucks or oh, this is good. You know, think about like, oh, why is this track right next to In the Air tonight? What is that showing? And so it's kind of broadened my appreciation of some albums that didn't quite hit me the first time. You accrue the life experiences which which allow you to appreciate where he was coming from. Right, exactly. All right, well, next we have Behind the Lines. 
we heard this song before. <laughs> Sounds familiar, right? Actually, I heard this way before. I heard the, the Genesis version. version. Oh, yeah. Not the real version. The Genesis <laughs> version. Yeah, don't say that. <laughs> ooh, ooh, I feel the uh, Genesis fan sticking pins in my oh. effigy right now. Um, yeah, so I heard that, because, you know, as I said earlier, I got this album in the mid-'80s, yeah. and I didn't hear Duke until, like, 10 years later. Sure. So I get to the Genesis version, it's like, damn, this is slow. Like, <laughs> oh, this is like plodding along, you know, because I'm so used to, I was used to this groove and the horns and yeah, it gets you moving. The Genesis one is great. I mean, I love, um, you know, we'll talk about Duke at some point, I'm sure. But uh, I think yeah. there's a difference is that this one's much lighter on its feet oh, than, the, uh, than, the, than the, the Genesis one. And that, I think you're absolutely right. One of the great things I love about this is I really do enjoy both versions. There's yeah. a there's real balls to the uh, to the Genesis version, mm-hmm. but there's real drive yeah. to this one. And I think this is it's it's something to remember that he probably recorded this version right after doing Dude, really, or right after even doing the Dude tour. And so this was a very new cover version for him. It's not like he's covering you know Timetable or something like that that was eight mm-hmm. years old. Yeah. He was covering a track that was just recorded by Genesis. Although an R&B version of Timetable would be, <laughs> would be very <laughs> That's right. To Let's do a mashup of that coming up. So, oh, But I could see, you know, this is, this is one of those tracks that I remember hearing an interview with Phil where somebody asked him, oh, why'd you do a cover of Behind the Lines on Face Value? And this is probably mid-80s. He's like, well, I really liked the song. And, you know, I think that at the time, he's like, I hadn't heard anybody else cover a Genesis song. So <laughs> I figured, why not? And and it's a really good cover. And I think, again, I'm coming to it very different than Stacy was, coming to it having heard the Dude version forever. Yeah. And then hearing this, I was like, oh, all right, this is different. And um, I almost wish he had done the entire opening too, kind of, you know, the instrumental two-minute thing from Duke, to kind of just see how that could be funked up With a little bit. With just the horns? That might be yeah, good. Yeah, you know, yeah. kind of do a radical rearrangement of things. But it's right the way it is. I think it's fun. It's fun. I was wondering what Tony and Mike thought of this song. Like, I don't I don't think I've ever read or seen an interview where they said, well, we, like, we love what Phil did with our song, or yeah. we didn't like it because... But I... I never heard any comment from them about like how he handled their track because this was Mike's lyrics, I think. Uh, I always thought it was Phil or Tony, but I could be wrong. One of the things which I think is very interesting is that it does have a very, very snappy R&B groove to it. Yeah. And the, the brass... First appearance on the album of the brass. Indeed, yeah. That middle section where, where they're sort of like, they start to vamp a little bit. Okay. You just can't, those are Tony Banks chords, you can't mistake those. That section is like, yeah, well that's the Genesis bit, that's the bit that really sticks through as being the Genesis sound. And then it pops back into that R&B bit as it comes straight out into the second verse. And this goes to what I actually kind of love about when you can cover Genesis is that I like covers that don't that aren't just carbon copies. Yeah. And this is certainly not a carbon copy of yeah. the original arrangement. So I think it's fantastic that again a member of the band said, let's do something different with this. This is one area where you can kind of do an alternate history because <laughs> you do have a Phil version and a Genesis version. Mm-hmm. Whereas in the air tonight, like you don't know what that would have sounded like as a Genesis song whereas okay well if Behind the Lines had been a Phil song this is what it would sound like and (laughs) we know what the Genesis was 
I just love the um, the bass line of this. This is my favorite bass track. I think mm, Alfonso yeah. Johnson. Oh man, yeah, oh, man. he really yeah. nails it. Yeah. He, uh, yeah, he, uh, he really gives this song a, a lift and a groove. Um, that, yeah, again, I, I don't know what it is, but this is my. I prefer this to the Genesis right. version. I think there's a lot of people yeah, who, but know, I love the Genesis this. version yeah. too like as Simon said I love the balls of the uh, of the, the version that's on Duke and when, especially when they do it live yeah. um, we hear live versions but for me I don't know I think I just I grew up you know before I even got into um, Phil Collins and around that time I listened to a lot of R&B mm-hmm. and soul music and so this really just resonates with yeah. me yeah one of the other things about uh, behind the lines was that uh, it was the the um, how actually it came to be as a version as a cover version mm-hmm. on on Phil's album um, apparently um, and I'm going from what was said on the classic albums okay. DVD um, where they were um, mixing Duke right and at one point Hugh Padgham had pressed fast forward but the playhead was still uh, engaged to the tape machine. So you got that on. Uh, and uh, they heard it going sort of double speed. And the whole of the band, not just Phil, the whole band sort of went, that sounds great. That sounds like Michael Jackson. That was really sort of, has that funk edge to it. And, uh, and I think that was part of the reason why he sort of like wanted to do a version which was like sped up. Sure. Yeah, that makes sense. Hugh Padgham, do no, no, there was um, that was David Henschel. Oh, sorry, David Henschel. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Well, I can actually I can do that again if needs be. But I, I can just drop in David Henschel <laughs> into that, and that's when David Henschel. <laughs> <laughs> and no one would notice it but us. So that's that's fine. No, I think that that's a really interesting story because again, it's it's the happy accidents in a recording studio yeah. that happened with that. To me, that again, that stuck in Phil's head. So we said, "Oh, I'll get some musicians to do this, and we'll see if it works." And it did. Well, let's move on now to the roof is leaking. This is a great track because, again, it's very unique on the album. It's unique within Phil's, you know, career. 
it's a start with him doing these solo tracks that kind of really kind of talk about the old west and you could tell you know when you learn about his alamo kind of hobby later on in life it's like oh this was always there he always had this interest in kind of the the mom pa what what's mary up to type of stories frontier uh, life yeah me and virgil you know things like that this is the best frontier yeah. song i think of all of them because we talked about um there's a few on, and then there were three. Big. Um, and then, yes, me and Virgil. Um, and yeah, this one, this to me is the best. And it is, it's one of, it really stands out in the album. Yeah. It is in, in a good way. Right. Um, it's unique. I love the banjo. Um, mm-hmm. I know, I noticed in the, in the new remixes, if anybody hasn't gotten it yet, you should get it because they really move the crickets up in the mix in this one. <laughs> clearing out there. Yeah. But this up is, a bit, yeah, so. this is the most evocative of all of, I think of all his tracks. I yeah. mean, you feel like you're in this cabin and it's dark and it's yeah. miserable. It's a, and, it's yeah. a cool short story. Exactly. You know, it's, and I think yeah. Phil does these great lyrics that are, you know, very personal to him that are generalizable to everyone else. And he also does these great short story lyrics like this, like Driving the Last Spike. There's other tracks where he he knows how to tell a story in song. And I think that that's something that gets overlooked, again, because the popular tracks tend to be the more emotional, the more, you know, lovey type tracks and everything, which are fine. But then these type of tracks get buried on an album and are forgotten about. They don't get airplay. They might get played in concert here and there. But I think that's that's something that, Phil is very good at it. And this is a, a song that it's quite unique, you know, mm-hmm. it's it is nothing like this in any other album of his. Uh, mm. this, the, the, I'm talking about the melody. Right. And, you know, Clapton is on guitar, I think. Actually, on the demo, he is. Oh, on the demo only. This okay. is, but he says in interviews that he he kind of should have kept the Clapton version. So nothing against the guitarist yeah, who's on the there. Banjo. Yeah. Yeah. Joe Partridge okay. did the guitar, yeah. yeah. Uh, and he said, great guitar player, but what he want, what Phil wanted was the exact same thing every time. And that's not how Clapton plays. Yeah. <laughs> and so, because he was being kind of the Phil, the this is my album, he said, I want it to be exactly the same each time. And now realizes that the better version is really the one with, with Clapton on it, which is a bonus track on the album now. Yeah. And he had said, I believe that they had recorded this possibly after a night out together oh, really? okay. and that maybe Clapton had imbibed a little bit too much <laughs> and, and maybe that maybe the playing wasn't up to the perfection at the time that Phil wanted but yeah. when you look back at it this it would have fit perfectly because right. you have a guy who's probably had a little bit too much to drink he's playing the dobro or, yeah. or whatever kind of guitar it is <laughs> and that kind of fits into some guy sitting on his porch just talking about his blues about how it, fit, it would fit the mood a lot better than a perfectly you know, timed guitar, which which I like on the studio version, but mm-hmm. when you put it in the Clapton version, it's just it's a little bit sloppy, bluesy. It's like it mm-hmm. w- would fit this song a lot better. Now, did he play this song live? Because I think it has this song has he so did. much poten- potential it to has. be played yeah. live and do there different was, um, things. It's on live at Perkins Palace, so I know. Okay. It is, and I think there's an old Grey Whistle test I've seen oh, where yeah. the, he did actually a Brand X song and this. Oh, okay. Which is really strange. <laughs> I, uh, <laughs> It's again, this is Phil kind of, you know, showing his range as a writer. And because every track on this album so far has been very different from each other. And actually, I think the entire album is like that. But, you know, this is not just saying, oh, I'm going to write in one vein for the entire album. It's saying, here's what I can do. Here's what I bring to the music that I produce. 
when he's telling a story with this song, that kind of harkens back to his Prague days where a lot of the songs were mm-hmm. story songs. And also it kind of brings back that songs segueing into other songs because yeah. this yeah. kind of starts, yeah. the crickets start at the end of Behind the Lines. Right. Right. And then the songs are continuous throughout the end of side one. You right. have it going right into Roof is Leaking, right into Drone, right into Hand in Hand. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of, you have this whole block of side one, mm-hmm. which, you know, is reminiscent of his prog days, but it's up to the modern sound right. that he was doing at the time. It's his version of that. I don't, I don't think there was a subsequent album where he attached no, songs no. to it. I think, and these, and I think even on side two, there was, you know, there were the gaps between the music, which Stacy's talked about at times yeah. with certain things are very short, you know, and even with between this must be love and behind the lines, there's, if there's a gap there, it's really yeah, yeah. short. So, you know, I think he was thinking of this as, you know, this is all a piece together. I think it's very important to remember that um, he loves narrative, uh, be it lyrical or Mm -hmm. musical. And as you say, having those three songs that that fell into one another at the end of uh, side one, I mean, we'll get to talk about some of those songs in a minute, but that you get that sense that he's he's setting the, um, uh, what would you call it, the... uh, uh, the ground with this mm-hmm. lyrical narrative, which then extends off into a musical narrative. We had one uh, listener to the podcast who, when we were you know, asking about people to vote for their favorite track, they had commented, I didn't know there were three separate tracks. I thought this was just one group yeah. no, block of songs yeah, until I realized that you know I had to vote, and all of a sudden they were broken down into three different tracks. <laughs> I can see that, yeah, because it's if you don't, not everybody obsesses over over credits or or even looking at some of the you put the CD, you put the record on, and you just let it play. And yeah, people with it who for instrumentals, they it's very easy for them to blend together. To this day, I still don't know when um, Drone stops and Hand in Hand starts. I just, because I always listen to this as a complete piece of work. Right. I, I, gen, I generally don't shuffle something, right. uh, like listen to songs on shuffle. Yeah. And um, so I still, to this day, I need to actually, maybe when we're done here, I can <laughs> like take a look and we'll see. Break it down. It's the same thing so. like Wind and Weathering with yeah. uh, Unquiet Slumbers. And, you know, I, I just, yeah, I just don't Sometimes know. It doesn't matter it where doesn't it matter. Is, so. And again, it honks to that moment that, you know, when you think about it in this day and age, we're the, you know, we're the iCloud generation. You know, yeah. we can, we can, you know, we're the the Spotify generation where everything's on continuous shuffle, and you could, you struggle to find that kind of constant narrative right. that albums, certainly vinyl albums, used to imbue. Sure, that works. Yeah. <laughs> no, I think I agree a hundred percent because I think that, and Phil even says it in the new liner notes that, you know, the singles kind of back in the day, you know, do overwhelm the album. And because, you know, if it doesn't get radio play, if if you're not a fan who bought the album, those songs don't exist. And so it's a matter now of, you know, people kind of going, going back and revisiting these albums and saying, oh, yeah, I like In the Air Tonight. I like I Missed Again. Maybe I'll buy this. You know, it's a reissue. It's some bonus stuff on it. I've been a fan for a while and I haven't learned. I've lost this album somewhere. And now they can kind of re-experience this and say, oh, there's some really good music on here. Yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating to hear, though, that this atmosphere he creates, it's very, very... To speak to your point that you made slightly earlier about the, the eclectic nature of the, uh, of the material, sure. every single track has an atmosphere yes. about it. Um, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you go from that dark- darkness that kicks off the album within the air tonight... Mm-hmm 
This track probably for me, even though it might not necessarily be my favourite track, mm -hmm. it certainly is the one that I, I just feel it has real real atmosphere to yeah. it. And again, Phil's coming from a band that was all about atmosphere, that was all about, you know, telling a story within a song. And now let's move on and talk about Droned. I love instrumentals, so in general, be it Genesis or you know solo material. Uh, anyway, yeah, I love it. It's, it's really intense and it's really um, it goes too well with the roof is leaking. I like the you know the the transition from the lyrics into the music, just music. <laughs> it's the most Brand Xy yeah. moment on the album, yeah. in my opinion. It's very frantic and. Yeah, it's kind of spooky in some yeah. places, you know. There's he's still in that dark place from the um, from the roof is leaking where he was. It's almost like he's venturing off the property and going into the forest. Oh, wow, that's really uh... <laughs> <laughs> now you're getting into squonk. I now think. I'm getting into squonk here, and a little trick of the tail. But no, it, it, it's kind of yeah. This is again. There's so many dark moments on this album, and, yeah. and droned is no exception. Um, but as Simon said, very much Brand X. I mean, when I started listening to Brand X after mm. I um, had been hearing this album, first thing I thought of was Drone. Yeah, you can see the, yeah. the through line Absolutely. of that type of material. And, so. I, and like Ellie, I love instrumental music. Mm. Um, so I'm happy to get a solid chunk of instrumental uh, mm. music on this That's album. Good. Just Phil drumming away. Right. And again, it's... It's again, people think like, oh, Phil went pop or whatever. I'm like, there's two instrumentals on this album right. in a row. <laughs> and so, and they really kind of fit well together. I think the piano in this, this very percussive piano that he's playing through this is, you know, fantastic. I think that this gives a real, you know, bite to the album that, not that it was lacking because there's plenty of bite in some of the earlier tracks, but it's a different type of music than people who might have, that people wouldn't have been expecting from a Phil Collins album unless they were knew the Brand X pieces, which right. again, Brand X was not a huge band, so many people didn't know that type of music. Oh, I just wanted to make mention of, of the fact that uh, this is the track that features um, uh, percussionist and violinist Shankar. Oh, oh yes. Um, yes, and uh, um, as um, 
<laughs> as Phil Collins actually said, again, I'm quoting from the DVD, the fastest tongue in the West, <laughs> or the East, then he then corrects himself right. as. And um, it uh, it's just strange that, that um, uh, out of all of the... Uh, people tend to sort of like... Uh, Say that Peter Gabriel was the guy that that really got into uh, world to world music, music or, or or as or as Steve Hackett might say, <laughs> regional music. Right. <laughs> um, but then again, I think there's always been a sort of like you know Beatles esque vibe yeah. to, to to Phil's material in some ways. I like it when Phil gets weird. Yeah. And because again, he's a he's a musician of extraordinary talent who knows how to get that talent out of people. I mean, both as a musician and as a producer, he he knows what he's looking for. And so I think that's, you know, bringing in some different types of musicians that, again, would you expect kind of an Indian violin player to show up on a Phil Collins album? Well, this is the first Phil Collins album, so I guess it's a wide open book. But I think that's something that I love to see the experimental Phil Collins and taking those experiences that he had maybe as a session musician playing on 18 billion albums in the 70s, say, oh yeah, I like that piece of that. I met this guy doing a Brian Eno album. I'll bring him in. That's where, when you have a musician who's, a, who's as wide-ranging as Phil is, you can have those moments that surprise you. Yeah, It's like a hidden gem, some songs <laughs> like this yes. one. I think this is the track that shows, uh, if you can imagine that the more poppier songs uh, mm-hmm. show the sort of the breadth of his writing. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the instrumental tracks display the depth of his yes. writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it shows a musician pushing himself. Yeah, you know, in directions that you know that again he might have gone over a bit with Brand X, but again, this is his Brand X was still a band, and so this is his version of Brand X within his solo career. Let's move on now to Hand in Hand. I hear this song I think I've watched Genesis of History the documentary too much because whenever I hear Hand in Hand I always picture Phil in the rain in France driving through to a concert in a SUV because <laughs> that's the song they play oh, during okay. this scene in the documentary yeah. so whenever they you know play that horn section that's the part that's that they use mental my mental association now. is Phil with his head out the window going south of France it always rains or something <laughs> <laughs> the little moments we take with us right yes. I love this song. This song makes when I heard it the first time, I was like, "Oh, I want to learn to play drums." <laughs> I I noted that it was kind of back to melody after the oddness of droned, uh, after the kind of you know percussive piano and things like that. We get the horns kind of out there, and this is 
I could have seen him bringing these melodies into Genesis and them doing an instrumental with this or using it for a song in some ways. You know, this is where I think, you know, had Phil not done a solo album and brought all of these bits into Genesis, they could have gone, oh, yeah, we'll use that. We'll use this. And, you know, we'll develop something out of that. It's to me, it's the most Genesis-y thing on the album without, but it's with horns. So it's a little bit different with that. This one is more sounds more like laid back. Like. It's one of the we were listening to uh, the whole album in the car, and I think that the groove on this track, while being a lot more, uh, what would you call? I don't want to use the word flowery, but a lot more involved, right. does actually have an awful lot of similarity yeah. with I missed again. Sure, you know, there's this sort of like playfulness about where the one is or where's the <laughs> downbeat on it, and uh, and he syncopates so beautifully. With the um, uh, with the with the brass on this, the snare drum and the cymbal work alongside the brass, it's as, it's as close to um, to sort of like pocket playing funk that mm-hmm. I think he ever really got. Sure, and and it has the I I'm not necessarily a fan of children's choruses in rock music, but I think this works on this track. Oh yeah, well, what yeah. was was it like session musicians or I was think it? Was. It's uh, I have Jeez. it right here, children uh, from the Church of Los Angeles. Okay. The churches of Los Angeles, yeah. so yeah. and I think it works here. You know, yeah. it's it's something. Yeah, and I I don't want, I never want to make blanket statements about music, but generally when you hear kids singing, I'm like, yeah, okay, whatever. But I think it, it does fit the music. <laughs> you know, it's it's it is something that works in this instrumental. So I'll say this is the exception for me that proves the rule. There is one other, as which well. is another, uh, another brick in the wall, part two. Yeah, I, 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 I can live with that one also. <laughs> what chorus would you choose? Like, oh, I don't know. No chorus at all? <laughs> maybe maybe or... like parrots. You're asking me to make production decisions for other yeah, musicians. They're welcome to use the children's choruses. I don't have to like it. <laughs> so. It's a really happy instrumental. Yeah, yeah. Kind of like I think that's why the kids work, I think. As Ellie yeah. was saying, the drone is kind of like... You start with roof is leaking, the sun sets, you get into the night and droned and, mm-hmm. and, the, and all the chaos that's going on in the darkness. And then, as Phil had said, then morning wakes and the animals are waking up. And all of a sudden you have hand in hand with the slow build. You could have used parrots there. Yeah. You could have used parrots there. <laughs> <laughs> and then it goes into like a very memorable yeah. melody. I, I played this album you know, in the car a couple of times in the past couple of weeks. And even I think only after I know hearing it twice, also my wife was humming along to this song. I'm like, it really sticks. It's to an me. earworm. It's, 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 it? it's got a happy yeah. melody, which we're like, you can't help but smile when you're singing along to it and hearing the horns and everything just comes together. Mm-hmm. Well, this brings us around to um, actually the use of the, the Phoenix horns. Now, if I I was we I actually asked a question of uh, Stacy about this because I wasn't entirely sure whether or not the Phoenix horns were. All of the horns from the Earth, Wind, and Fire, or on this if it was album, just, yes, it was on okay. This album, yes. I um, think it might have had, changed. Were forward. they did? Were they actually the Phoenix horns, or were they just no. the guys in Earth, Wind, and Fire at this point? Earth, Wind, and Fire horns, courtesy of Earth, Wind, and Fire. Oh, well, there we are. <laughs> then, in that case, but yeah. there's a, there, this leads us round to another thing, which is um, Earth, Wind, and Fire's arranger, Tom Tom. Okay. Um, and uh, Tom Tom was the was was essentially the bridge between, from what I can see from mm-hmm. from documentary evidence and what I've read, was the bridge between the the songwriting of, of Phil and mm-hmm. the, the sort of like the groove that he wanted out of the brass, mm-hmm. um, because 
you know, Phil Phil had this, and he mentioned this, I think, a little bit when he, when he was talking about the recording of Abacab, a sort of his own brand of notation, almost mm. like dots and dashes, sure. as, to, as to annotate where the, the brass was to, supposed to be playing. Yeah. Uh, and I, I think Tom Tom's role as an arranger was pivotal in a lot of ways. He sort right. of, like, helped define that. That sort of brass sound that uh, that Phil Collins used to great effect throughout his entire career. Definitely. Yeah, I think it. Like, I think the brass really works on this album. So I think it's it's a nice flavor that you wouldn't have otherwise, and it's not everywhere, you know. And I think when it's used, it's used really well. There's a there's a sax later on that I'm not thrilled about, but that's fine. So, but I that's think, <laughs> again. I think this one of the other things that I will say about this and and, and this out this track is maybe not the most typical example to use, but it is pertinent to what we're talking mm-hmm. about, is that so much of, uh, of Phil Collins' work now feels a little bit clichéd, and mm-hmm. it's not because it was dull at the time, it was mm-hmm. because everybody copied right, it afterwards. Exactly. Right. Yeah. It was used over and over again. I think that's that's always you know the problem of success, is that other people who maybe don't do it as well say, oh, I'll take, if I just take these pieces... I'll be just as popular as Phil Collins. And you don't understand that Phil Collins worked, has been being a drummer and a singer for five or ten years and has developed a skill that, you know, he's one of the best drummers in the world. He gets how music works. And when you come around and say, oh, let's just do stick this on there, let's just stick some horns on there, it's like even though Phil wasn't the horn arranger, he knew what he wanted from that. And probably no matter who else came in and arranged it, Tom Tom in this case, you know, if it wasn't what Phil wanted, Phil would have said, "Oh, let's change that a little bit." Yeah. So I think that's that's the joy of solo albums, right there. And it's it is one of those albums which, um, when you consider that you have two very disparate uh, mm-hmm. musical disciplines, the the funk of Earth, Wind and Fire, mm-hmm. and the, and the sheer Britishness, I suppose, <laughs> of of, uh, of Genesis course, yeah. and Phil, that it came together and it just it, it came together and it fits yeah, so well. It, works, yeah. it was one of those things where, you, where you know, it's almost like putting two different calves together mm-hmm. and all of a sudden you're thinking, oh, I'm going to create some horrible thing, mm-hmm. but what comes out is this amazing hybrid. Yeah. No, I, I agree with that. I think you, <laughs> I like the genetic manipulation idea there of, of taking these genres that you wouldn't think about being together, you know, the Englishness of Phil and the funk, and it, it just marries together really well. And there's other examples of around the same time where it works decently, like Paul McCartney's Coming Up. Or like know. prog rock. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the classical yeah. rock music. Right, and jazz. yeah. And I just mean, kind of taking the whole idea of exactly. music. And I think, again, the Genesis guys all do this individually and together where they bring different influences into their music. Phil does it, Steve does it, Peter does it, you know, Mike and Tony do it in their own different ways. But I think that that's where this music comes from. It's the idea of saying, oh, we can take A and B and make C. Again, further supporting my argument that this is the most prog <laughs> there you go. solo album. <laughs> the, the, the most prog of the, like, debut solo debut album. Debut solo I think, album. Yeah. I, I just think that really all the best musicians are the ones that disregard boundaries. Yes. They just go, well, I'm going there because this sounds interesting to me. Yeah, and why not? You know, Phil had no baggage as a solo artist at this point. So he could really do whatever he wanted. He didn't even know if this was going to be an album. (laughs) You know, it could have just ended up being a collection of, you know, demos and B-sides and, you know, until, you know, the record company heard it and said, yeah, let's do this, you know. 
it's something that I think is a fantastic start to a solo career. And a great end to a side. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so with that, we'll wrap up side one and we'll jump into I Missed Again. Again, the opening of side two of Face Value. I feel like a DJ saying that. <laughs> <laughs> this is actually one of my favorite tracks on the album. I, I think I, it's. I agree. Yeah, it's a happy song. Well, it feels happy. Yes. Again, you went, when, when you get into the <laughs> lyrics, it's yeah. not quite as happy. It's an but, angry, happy song. Yeah. Oh, there you go. Is so this category B for you? No, I I wouldn't put it in the A and B of the love, love song. Okay. But it's uh, it's kind of like little early vibe of Invisible Touch. It's like you okay. think it's it's a happy song, and then you mm-hmm. listen to it, you're like, oh, he's a little bit angry in this song. Right. There's a lovely, uh, if you, I don't know if you've ever seen the single on this, but the, the actual cover of the single is is Phil looking like Phil did back in the days with flat cap. Right. Um, and he's been sliced in half, and one yeah. half of him is falling oh, off. Oh, okay. Yeah. I've, seen that. <laughs> yeah, I've never it's, seen that. I don't yeah. think there's blood. I think no, no, oh, I just think okay. it's, it's been photoshopped. He's not being disemboweled right. or anything. Whatever, whatever <laughs> the 80s equivalent of Photoshop was, right, where he yes. would been, his picture had been put in one uh, half, yes, and so he was, like, he was yeah. sliding off at, that, at an angle. Yeah, it's not like he's on The Walking Dead or something. All right, <laughs> yeah. I guess that's where my brain goes. Yeah. I, actually, I, I thought this was actually kind of the most mainstream song on the album, yeah. just in its sound and its feel. And, you know, I, whether that says something to me about being one of my favorite tracks, that's just kind of how I view this song. And it kind of hit me with listening to this that, you know, Face Value to me is very much like Peter Gabriel's first album. In that, not in the sound necessarily, but that it was a potpourri of music. Mm-hmm. Right. That it was a lot of different styles and a lot of different influences, much like Peter's first album, where it was like, oh, I have this idea, let's throw it in here. I want to do a disco track like Down to Dolce Vita, let's throw that in there. Oh, we have Humdrum, kind of a weird kind of, you know, ballady type of thing, let's throw that in there. And this is Phil's version of that, of just saying... I have all these different tracks that don't necessarily sound like each other, but they're all him. And it shows, again, the breadth of his writing. And I think that this was, you know, a track that, for me, it, it just kind of hit me at the, during this song that that was an analogy that I could draw. I, I, I totally agree with you. I think that's synonymous with, I think, a lot of, of first solo outings yeah. because you literally have no real idea who you are as a writer at that right. point and so you're just trying out stuff right. and I think as the albums go on yeah. the narrative if you will the writing narrative sort of coalesces right. so I always think that the earlier albums while the artists themselves might not think that it's as strong as maybe some of their later stuff I always believe the earlier albums are the more interesting yeah. 
for the simple reason that, because there's yeah. less filtering going on, I right. think. Yeah, and you wonder where are they going to go next? Like taking this potpourri, as you said, you mm-hmm. know, they're just trying to find their voice and their style. And mm-hmm. yeah, like Peter's first album and any other, I think, mm-hmm. album you could probably think of where it's their first time being responsible for all the material that's mm-hmm. going on it because they come from groups where it was, you know, democratic set up mm-hmm. and they had, you know, a say as part of a group here it's like this is just you so mm-hmm. you have to be you have to represent in essence five people because <laughs> that's how you're used to working before right the song in itself has got an amazingly good groove to yes. it and this this is i think for me i think it's it's one of my favorite moments on the album just simply because of the drum work on it yeah. it's beautifully understated but it really it holds everything together in a lot of ways, that drum performance. Like Ellie was saying with Drone, this was my this was the track that made me want to be a drummer. <laughs> and I love the syncopation, I love the groove. Um, it's still, I think, one of my favorite um, songs that has Phil drumming. Um, yeah, so, and, and the horns are very percussive and the his drumming is very melodic and it's just, yeah, it's a, it's just a nice, it's just so, it's deceptively, like many things in the Genesis world, deceptively uh, complex. And the, ba- <laughs> the bass at the end, in the second half of it, has these nice kind of slides, like, boom, yeah. coming down mm. and it just, it has a feel to it, again, that the arrangement is really tight on this. Yeah. There's a, it, the bridge is great in this track. You know, I, it's, it's again, you know, a quintessential Phil song. As Simon said, it's got one of you know its favorite part on the album. I think after the in the air tonight drum fill, this song has my second favorite part when he's coming out of the bridge and I feel it coming at me. I can feel it coming oh, at yeah, me. Oh yeah, that chord sequence. Oh, it just goes right back into the chorus. It's amazing. That best second best part on the album. Is that a little stop to it? Stop the bass sliding yeah, out. Yeah, see, we're all in agreement here. Yeah, that is a really smart bit of songwriting. And the video. I mean, oh, where yeah. did you ever see people miming they were playing horns? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, maybe Genesis should do a video like that. <laughs> oh, that's so strange. So unique. So, But yeah, I mean, and Phil, I think, did, you know, it's one of those things that I think was done a lot in the 80s of, you know, having the artist do everything in a video. I mentioned McCartney before with Coming Up. I think it was done the same way. And he did that with the second album with You Can't Hurry Love, too. Yeah. He played all the backup singers. and Maybe he was just cloned early on. I think it was, as as my dad used to say, that's trick photography. (laughs) (laughs) Now they call that visual effects. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) It was trick photography. It was tricky, you know, perhaps a more honest way of describing it there. All right. Well, let's move on with You Know What I Mean. Take what you got and leave on 
So this is, you know, my my note about this before I cry was that, you know, this is the definition of ballad. Yeah. And I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean it in a way that it's it's the most direct lyric on this album. And there's so much in here that when you know the context of this that he was writing these songs, going through a divorce, separation from his wife and kids and everything. It's just so touching and so connecting even if you haven't gone through that experience you're like oh my god this is this is something that somebody's again wearing their heart on their sleeve here so this was the song that after hearing it immediately spitting image made the crying phil puppet that they used on their show was this song i think this is the first sad ballad you know in phil's solo career i mean everything else on the album might have had an air of regret or Mm -hmm. what should have been or you know, things are different now, but I think this is the first one yet where you do have that really strong emotion. It, I put this in the B category of Phil's love songs, but it's it's a sad, sad song. Sad and, and kind of the, I think the confusion of a breakup is written really well in these lyrics where it's That's like... A, yeah, you're like, absolutely spot on the money. Like, there. why did you leave me? I don't get this. You know, there's the line, you know, I wish I could write a love song bit ironic coming from phil with this <laughs> with with his you know future career future writing with this but you know that whole kind of stanza of you know i wish i could write a love song to show you the way i feel seems you don't like to listen but like it or not take what you've got and leave you know it's just like it's it's that you know love and regret with that bite of but you're still leaving me I do get a sense of um, Phil rattling around in that big house in Surrey. <laughs> That's one of the things that, that really hit, hits home to me, is that this is the first song on the album where I imagine him recording it and writing it. A lot of the other ones sort of kind of present themselves a little bit insulated from, from that initial music creation, but this one... You're right there in the room with him. As, as the, it was, but see, even Dora, our dog, is, yeah. is, 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 is sad, saddened by the track. Yeah, I, I see this. It is a, it's a beautiful, sad, heartfelt ballad. But for me, it actually musically sounds more like a show tune. Oh really? I think the style, especially the chorus, this is like almost. Very, 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 very early days Disney uh, writing. I can see it here. And it's it's because he, he, you know, maybe it's his his past. uh, I think he grew up um, when he was a kid. He went to drama school. So he was involved in acting at a young age. So, you know, kind of coming from that world, Mm -hmm. um, he knew how to be emotive in his singing. And especially that line that you referenced, Mike, you know, um, that line you referenced, I wish I could write a love song. And you hear his voice breaking a bit. Mm -hmm. And it's you get the trembly lip. And um, (laughs) I think this is a song that... You know, if you're a teenager or a, you know, early 20s listening to this, I don't know if it hits you the same way. Mm. Um, But I think when you've had more, you know, real world experience in relationships, or maybe when you're 15 and you've had that bad breakup, this song would really hit you too. I don't know, having not had that experience, but, you know, being an adult and hearing this now is a very different perspective than 13 and hearing. Yeah. This yeah. song is the is the album's unexploded bomb. It's that moment that all of a sudden 
some part of your life resonates with it and this song generates immense meaning and pathos, I guess. And I think it, it, if you know nothing about the story behind this album of how he came and wrote it, I think that this song kind of puts a lot of the other tracks that you've been hearing in a different perspective, yeah. too. When you realize, like, oh, this guy's been through a really crappy situation, you know, not to minimize it by just kind of, you know, summarizing in that in that way, but... You know, he's been in a bad situation and then saying, oh, now I understand what some of these other songs we're talking about, too. He's the trembly lip. Yes. Yeah, right. Even with this rhythm and the horns. And this one is just straightforward. I'm sad. Mm-hmm. I'm singing at my piano and singing this ballad. <laughs> and this is the first track on the album to feature strings yes. as well. Yes. And I yeah. think, it, is it in D minor, the saddest of all keys? <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's I true, think it right? very well may be. So. And this, to me, this is what, what made me think of the whole uh, parallel to both sides, this track. I mean, this could sure. this could have been on both right. sides. Well, the... Uh, we're talking about Phil's master of sequencing. I think putting this track right after I missed again really works because I missed again. You kind of lower your defenses. You're you're having a good time. You might be a little angry. Oh, I get with Phil. I get the horns are playing good. All right, you know I've lowered it. Bring it on. And then you, this unexpected song about true heartbreak and mm. I've really gotten over you. Why do you keep coming back? Like I mm. just leave, leave me alone. It, it, your defense is already lowered, so this song can really come into your heart and be mm-hmm. like, okay, I didn't expect this coming, you know, let me go get some Kleenex. <laughs> I also pay my attention to the lyrics because with that mist again, there's so much going on, so many instruments and happy sounds, and you yeah. kind of forget about the lyrics, and you're like, oh, okay, I missed again, but whatever. The other thing about this album is, is that going back to, to what Mike was saying about its eclectic nature mm-hmm. and about how it being a... Um, a potpourri of of sounds. I mean, I think that also speaks to the fact that it was recorded partially. It was using some of the demos mm-hmm. that he had in his studio, and partially in in proper professional studios. I think this one was was it recorded in L A. This one part and part of some in London, some in L A. Oh, because yeah, so, I think, I think this, it was done at the Townhouse. I think it was yeah. The, yeah, yeah. This was recorded, I think, in England, and yeah, they they added strings to it just to give it more of a you know just more. A sort of long and winding road. Yeah, to make you cry a little bit more. Yeah. (laughs) If you weren't sobbing already, the strings will put you on. Yeah. But I think he gave this. You know, wringing his hands, Machiavelli. Let's get some more sound. I could be wrong, and I would love to ask Phil personally this question, but Mm -hmm. I think uh, he handed it over to Atlantic in just him and piano. Mm-hmm. And oh, then really? they added, they're like, eh, it needs a little something else in there. And they added okay. the strings. Are you talking this specific this track? This specific track. Oh, okay. Kind of like uh, from Genesis to Revelation. <laughs> you know, they kind of. <laughs> right. So they really yeah, did do a sort of Phil Spector long and winding yeah. road, sort of let it be type mm, thing, where yeah. they sort of added embellishments. Mm-hmm. Okay. Interesting. Oh, well, let's move on now to Ow, Thunder and Lightning. <laughs> Oh, 
I do the Peter Gabriel? Of course. Yeah. Huh? <laughs> I was saying I, I will forever think of you when I hear this track and he does the ow <laughs> because of your Phil Collins, Peter Gabriel comparison. Well, as I said, you know, those can, you can, I know it sounds terrible to sort of pigeonhole people, but that's what I always think of. It's a friend of mine who, who suggests that you can sort of like sum up Phil Collins' vocal delivery with that yeah. ow and Peter Gabriel with huh? <laughs> <laughs> so because this is Thunder and Lightning is the first track that features the ow <laughs> in his solo <laughs> career which is fantastic and when we were listening to it last night it really it, it made me pop up and go oh this is where like it's it's right there so <laughs> and it's a great little track too I think that this is you know it's a track that for me if if I was listing the tracks from mem- memory from this album, I may forget this one. Because I don't associate... For some reason, I associate this more with later Phil yeah, than anything else. I, I see entirely what you would say. Because I, I can imagine this on a later album, yeah. actually. And I, I think that it's the one track on this album that I really thought, oh, this needs just a little more something to it. I don't know what that something is. But it just, it's the one track that I thought, oh, you know, if this had been left off, I wouldn't miss this track. It's got a great hook on the, yeah. the, the chorus is actually really yeah. hooky, actually. And I was, it was going through my head this morning, actually, but it wasn't, but I think it needed more to it. The, the thing that I like about this track is it, it's a great example of the modern era, if you can call that, modern era Phil Collins singing style. Okay. Um, where there's, where he's adding a little bit more grit Mm-hmm. to his voice when he's hitting those high notes mm-hmm. yeah it's a start of shouty phil from <laughs> yeah. the 80s yeah that really comes into its own with the mama album oh, i yeah. think but yeah it, the, i love the vocal that's my favorite part of this song is the vocal performance yeah. he's just showing a, a great range and mm-hmm. fits the music and it does it has a really good groove um john this is my favorite john giblin bass track oh, on yeah, the sure, album yeah. yeah yeah there's no, a lot of, there's a lot of cool stuff in this track and i and i don't want my comments to make it sound like i don't like it i just think that compared to the rest of the album it, it feels like it needed to be finished well when you consider that again speaking to what you said earlier it's an album that's overshadowed by its hits right. and as a result you know some of these tracks i mean this is um, what the young folk call a deep cut, <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I genuinely believe that this is one of those little hidden gems sort yeah. of sitting in his discography. All right, we're gonna move on now to I'm not moving. So this is a song that we were just talking a little offline. I think that mimics, not mimics, this is a song that reflects a lot of things that we might have, you know, heard in different music that Phil was related to. Simon, you said... 
I, th- I thought it sounded a little bit, reminded me a, a little bit of That's All. From sure, the kind of the yeah. bounciness of yeah. things. For yeah. me, it screams pigeons. Oh, yeah, that kind right. of bounciness yeah. to it. And I know that you know, Stacy <laughs> and Tom just gave a look to each other that I wish I had filmed. So, so, so then you understand. You can it. Then you understand why I believe this is the weak spot on the uh, album. I do because you dislike I cannot pigeons. stand pigeons, and this reminds me of that jaunty yeah. little feel that pigeons has, and it just ah. Uh, and there's there's a part of the song that i really like but okay. it, it's i can't get through it i mean i it's only about two minutes long but yeah. it's still and it has that lyric which really bugs me when it's like go for it do it you're number one <laughs> like, like, if you feel it do it you don't need a reason for all you know it could be good for you uh-huh. it, like it reminds me of that later like in the mechanic track like get up go oh, go okay, for sure. it whatever that yeah, it's song song get up. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Where it's like, come on, you're having a great day. We were just I was saying that it reminded me of the kind of song that you you cheerfully be humming in the shower. Right. And then you came back, no, it's montage music. Yeah, it's a montage from a film of somebody getting ready to go out on the town right. that night. And it's 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 a nice little song for me, you know. I I actually kind of thought it sounded a bit like the police in some ways. Um I know, very strange, but something in the chorus part of it made me think like oh i could picture sting singing this and you know maybe not as as a police arrangement but i can picture it sounding a bit that way simon said it sounds kind of beatlesque which i I think i agree yeah i mean it's it's got that sort of like um tight but cheery sort of drive to it which i think was typical of a lot of the uh the the sort of like especially the mid-era beatles Kind of it's, the rubber soul era. Yeah, you know, yeah. It's that. it, and, and really, if I had one word to uh, to to sum up this, mm-hmm. even though the lyrics might necessarily be uh, of a slightly different nature, cheerful. Yeah, I suppose is yeah. the is the word that I would yeah. use. And I like the rhythm of the song. That's mm-hmm. what really I think makes it stand out for me. Right. Okay. Oh, you were saying montage. Simon yeah. said, you know, uh, humming in the shower. I picture myself on a sweet pair of roller skates going down the street <laughs> to this song. It has like a kind of, that kind of rhythm to it, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, but the funny thing is we're all talking about this being a very driving, kind of moving yeah. forward type of song and the song is called I'm Not Moving. <laughs> <laughs> you know? it's, and so it's almost an exact contradiction to how it all makes us feel. Well, and to me, feel. this is the most dated thing track on the album mm, okay. so uh, all i think all all the other tracks to me there's elements that say that scream late 70s that scream late 80s but this track in particular the whole like to me this is yeah. old song okay. i don't know i it just it doesn't hold up as well today as i think as some of the other tracks on the album okay. not to say i don't love it it's great i never <laughs> skip it right. um but you know just looking at it as part of this whole piece here uh, this whole album yeah it just doesn't really do much for me now as it maybe did back when it was out. And just a reminder, when I compared it to Pigeons, I actually liked Pigeons compared, <laughs> to, <laughs> compared to other people in this group. So I, I actually, I do like this song, but I think it is, it's a very light song. And I think that's fine. I, I mean, going back to, we, we've mentioned this in the past, this, uh, you know, there's always going to be a least favorite track oh, on the album for, right. for you. And that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be uh, uh, you know, it, it, that doesn't make the song itself terrible. Right. But hey, if you don't like it, that's you know. Sure. It wasn't easy for me to pick my least favorite track on the album. Sometimes it's hard. Like, oh well, I, they're all so good. I was like, all right, no, it's I'm not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I said there is a part of the song I do like. Mm-hmm. 
just the one line where he goes, feel free to shout it out loud, speak your mind, spit it out. The way he says it, I think, is very cool. Mm-hmm. But it, I think this song could have been a B-side, and it, the album would have been fine because you mm-hmm. still have Thunder and Lightning breaking up, you know what I mean, and if Lee's leaving me is easy. So you don't have yeah. two ballads back-to-back. You do have that kind of fast rhythm track in between, and it wouldn't have been missed. This could have been a B-side, and, and the album still would have flowed pretty sure. well. Yeah, for for me too. It, it's not a bad song or anything. It's just it doesn't do anything to me. I'm just <laughs> listening to it in the background, maybe, or getting ready to leave to go somewhere. Of course, like, yeah, that's about it. Washing your hair. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Yeah, I'm I'm in the shower getting ready to go out and buy some roller skates. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's right. Fantastic. Everybody think on that image. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, right. I'm thinking of you in the shower with your roller skates. <laughs> <laughs> That's a slippery situation. So. Literally. Uh, yeah. Oh. All right. Another episode of Tabletop Regrets. Yes. <laughs> well, let's move on to If Leaving Me Is Easy. Good sex. <laughs> and I had mentioned before that I had some issues with the sax. 
and and this is the I just tend not to like this style of I'm gonna do some sultry sax here and start off this song with it, and it just doesn't work for me. That part of it, I think the song itself is fine, but I could live without the sax. I kind of feel though that this this song got a bit of a, a bum rap, but the fact that you know at this point not many people were doing that kind of sax open, but then the yeah. moment. George Michael, Careless Whisper, oh, yeah. then all of a sudden it's a cliche, you know? Yeah, and and that's... And again, because I don't have a history with this album of long-term listening to it from back in the early 80s, maybe if I had heard this then, I'd be more okay with that, but... I'm definitely now, thinking Miami Voice at the moment. At this, at this I think because, yeah, if it yeah. opens the... Ch- I love it, of course, um, <laughs> because it's sax, and I'm a big fan of the saxophone. Okay. Um, but I like that it opens a track. I think if it was a solo in the middle, then that's to me the more cliched sax, uh, 80 sax sound. Um, but like Simon said, this wasn't cliched at the time. It was just another horn in, you know, in the ensemble. The 80s kind of did for the saxophone for for so many people because it, because of that huge amount of overuse. Yeah. Yeah. Lawn in the city, all that type of stuff, and yeah. Yeah. but I like it as an opener because it it it's the first time. I mean, not the first time, I guess, um, but it really stands out because he's typically starting, you know, something with percussion or the drum machine, mm-hmm. um, and this right. is totally different. Sure. Um, so it's it's unique. It's another one of those unique um, things about the album. And I think, if I remember correctly, did. When they played this song live, he had a lot of trouble keeping an audience focused, and I think there were some issues with. I oh don't, yeah. yeah, yeah. You get an arena full or a theater full of people, and with some you try beer. to do anything that's a bit delicate. You know, yeah. Steve talked. Uh, they've all talked about this in interviews that the quieter numbers are harder to put across live. Yeah, ballads, stadiums, and light beer do not mix. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> this yeah. is yeah. What I agree with the opener with the saxophone. I love I like that mm-hmm. 20 seconds whatever 30 seconds i do like that sax a lot but once it gets into it proper that's when it kind of loses me because it just kind of plods on and has such a slow beat that i can see where when he tried to do it in concert when you're at an arena level of performing 18,000 20,000 people aren't going to sit through a song that is five or six minutes to begin with but then you extend it with horn solos and Something at the end, I mean, this would be a song that if he played it in concert, I would probably go to the concession stand and get a beer and then go to the bathroom and then maybe go look at some of the souvenirs and then maybe talk to some friends. And then by the time I get back, he might be close to finish. But I understand, again, this is this was a song that was very dear to his heart oh, sure. as well. Uh, or is very dear to his right. heart. You're not dead yet, Phil. Um, <laughs> but it's just that whole business of, um, uh, I, I get... You know, you had a question for um, for Steve on the last episode mm-hmm. where you were talking about tracks which you thought would be a real hit sure. and missed, and there were other tracks which didn't really connect with you. You know, with you, but the audience seemed to get into it. I, I suspect that this is one of those tracks for Phil that he genuinely wanted to be um, a central part of his set, right. and you know, the stadium crowd were just not letting it happen. Right. You know? Again, the lyrics with this. With you know what I mean, it's so sad, and it's just like you know I've kept all the pictures, but I hide my feelings so no one knows. You know this is again about breakup and trying to be you know strong in the face of adversity. But the title, if leaving me is easy, it should have a dot 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 after that because the question there or the answer to that is then what's my value as a person? Yeah, 
and I think that's where this is this is tough for him going through this of being the one who has been left and now has to figure out how to move on with his life. Yeah, this song comes across uh, to me like very depressing, whereas you know what I mean, it can be sad, or it is sad because of the lyrics, of course. But it, yeah, if living in me is easy, as Tom said, it's too slow and, you know... It lingers. It lingers mm. and... And I think mm. it, it actually kind of, the song proper stops at around three minutes, but it goes on for another couple minutes of just the really high, you know, fills balls up into his body going, if leaving me, you know, it's like, <laughs> I can't even do it, it's so high. And that just gets repeated kind of over and over again. And there's the you know, outro saxophone. And I think that was really tough in concert. And, and I get that Phil probably felt very close to the song. And sure. it's a song that he said, well, they're going to love it too. And But after a while, when people are talking to it, then it's not them. Then it's got to be, you got to look, okay, well, maybe this isn't working. And, and play it in a, a, a theater show. Yeah. yeah. Play it in a, in a club yeah. show or and something And, you know, like this is all, like, you know, assumptions here. I don't know mm-hmm. for a fact. But you think about it, you know, your first solo album, you go out and tour it. You probably got a mixture of Genesis fans who probably do sit down quietly and listen to to the quieter Genesis songs, and that's he's used to that as a performer. And then you got another half of the crowd which are here to hear "In the Air of the Night" mm-hmm. and I some missed, I missed yeah, again yeah. and the up song. The up so. song so. And hopefully, hook up with a girl. Yes, <laughs> right. and you know because he's getting more popular, he's playing the radio, he's pulling people maybe have never heard him before, right. and it's this new guy. It's this new guy. He's the he's the thing now and. And um, so, yeah, when you when you go into and I think any venue with a with a song that is so deeply emotional and personal Mm -hmm. and sad and at a tempo um, that's near death. um, (laughs) (laughs) uh, Yeah, it's going to be a challenge to play live on the album. It it, it's beautiful. I can you know, it's very heartfelt. um, Like and it's the last track. It's his last original original track track on the album. I don't know if he didn't tour with. This album, right? He didn't tour, tour to this. Long must be going. Yeah, I was gonna time, say it's uh, pretty much this. Yeah. You, you have all there. the same. You have like a whole set list, which is horns blaring at you, drums yeah. blaring at you. It is a lot to ask of our audience who are just coming to see you as a solo artist to sit for eight minutes during this sad sax laden yeah. song. I think. It, it, he just wanted to feature the saxophone <laughs> player. Ba- ba- balanced by their very nature yeah. at a slow tempo. So as yeah. a result, the changes are also slow. The verses are longer. The the choruses, you know, just because it takes more time to get through. Right. And as a result, you find a lot of a lot of ballads sitting at the four or five minute mark. One of my one of my favourite live videos, along mm. with the Manator, is the No Ticket Required. Okay. live one where he shot that on the No Jacket Required tour in sure. Dallas okay. and I didn't know this until later on until I actually looked at the Classic Albums Face Value DVD mm-hmm. that uh, this song was dropped from that the, from that video from that live concert video okay. um, and uh, again I think it was because he was having trouble with keeping the audience's right. attention right and if that translates onto the video too, whether it's frustration from the music, musicians or crowd noise, it's not a good listening experience or viewing experience as you know something you'd want to take out over and over again. Like I, I really liked my comments about the sax intro. Notwithstanding, I really liked this song. Again, as much as you didn't like a song about heartbreak and depression, mm. but it's the song works for me in that respect. And, but yeah, I think that it, it's the definition of album track. I don't think that 
you know, live, unless you're playing much smaller venues, this isn't going to be something that's going to translate. At a club show, I think it could translate. Or just him at a piano. Yeah, I think that's the, whether it's that type of theater show where you do something like that, so... You know, we're giving career advice now to somebody who probably doesn't, <laughs> who really doesn't need it, I think, because he's had a fantastic notes, career. Phil, but yeah. Phil, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> but I think this is this is a great song, and I think that's you know our comments notwithstanding. I think that you know, I mean, maybe Tom doesn't like it too much, but I think we all. <laughs> <laughs> but I think we all. I yeah. kind of skip over it because oh, I just know it's going to take a lot right to listen to bum it. You yeah. Out, yeah. So. yeah but no i think this is i i think that as his his last statement on the album it works and i think also because this is kind of the the sad song you know with you know these lyrics where you know it seems i was wrong but i love you just i love you the same and that's the one thing you can't take away but just remember if leaving me is easy you know, and then we go into this track, Tomorrow Never Knows, which is, to me, just the title of that is a bit more hopeful. That it is that turnaround of, yeah, I may be in a bad space now, but this will get me somewhere else. Tomorrow Never Knows, ending with a cover, the Beatles cover, of a really cool track. I, I really like both the original and this cover version. I This is my favourite track on the album. Oh. Uh, and, uh, and it's because it was the very first track I heard. Oh, all right. By, uh, and, I, and because I was a youngster um, who really at that point wasn't as maybe as musically aware, uh, I hadn't really listened to the Beatles' back catalogue, so I heard this version oh. before... I heard the Beatles That's um, version. That's fascinating. I wouldn't yeah. have thought that. Yeah, I heard but... this too. Yeah, I wasn't a big Beatles person Yeah, me too. I, I've never heard that. Actually, I've never heard that. I've never heard that. Listeners, the look on Mike Lord's face yeah. is, is probably the same as the look on all your faces. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Again, because I wasn't even the biggest Beatles fan growing up, but this was a track I was familiar with. And when I, again, I mentioned that my brother, I think, had, I think, my brother did have this on tape. And so I was aware of this track, and I was like, oh, that's that Beatles track with the birds in it. And because it sounds like Seedles and stuff in the original Beatles track. And I know in an interview, Phil said that he he always thought that, you know, Tomorrow Never Knows was a song, a Beatles song that kind of got lost in the shuffle. 
and he thought it was a really cool song, really good song, and so we wanted to do a version of it. And I think that what I was saying with closing up when we were talking about it, Leave Me Is Easy, lyrically and, you know, just with the title, Tomorrow Never Knows is a very hopeful statement. Interesting, though, that he would end the album on the cover. Yeah, I think that's interesting. Both first and second albums, didn't he? Didn't, or at least side one of Hello, I Must Be Going ends with a cover. With uh, You Can't Hurry Love? You Can't Hurry Love. Okay. But yeah, but the album tr- ends with his song. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. I thought, I thought that might have been a staple, like, that that was something he was going to go for mm. throughout his solo album. It's like, I'll do one cover. And actually, he has, you know, Two Colors, a couple other songs. There's, I think they have an album of B-Sides where he does a, he does uh, Golden Slumbers, Carry That Weight. Yeah, that was on a The End. Album and that was really good. So, I mean, I think he, as a songwriter, he appreciates the work that goes into oh, sure. writing a good song. And with and he going says, back, yeah, too. He, yeah, and he kind of pays tribute to that by putting his own spin on it. Sure. No, and with with both the Genesis track on this album and the Beatles track, you know, he's choosing good songs to cover. So I think that I really, I like this version of it. If anything, I think it's maybe just a tick, although it's almost five minutes, but I was going to say, I think it might be a little bit too short because I just always felt this is a song that could expand, but maybe keeping it, trying to keep it more concise is a better way of going for an end of an album. I think, I think he achieved maybe I mean, not consciously, might have been one of his goals with the song, is that he, I think, he probably grew up with the Beatles, oh, you know, as, as a big part of him. He was in, or cut out of Hard Day's Night, from what I hear. Right. Mm-hmm. He recorded um, with George Harrison, cut out of that too. But after I heard the song and knew that it was, you know, the Beatles, it made me want to go back and hear the Beatles and explore that, which I'm like, if this What's had this such What's this band, the Beatles, yeah, people talk who about? who are these? <laughs> <laughs> Is that the group McCartney was in before I, Wings? Of course. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting, I was just looking again at uh, Wikipedia about the critical reception of the album, and there's a guy called Will Levith who wrote for, or who writes for Ultimate Classic Rock in 2013, mm. and he says that the album is now, you know, regarded widely as a classic. Right. But he also makes mention of Tomorrow Never Knows as being an absolutely atrocious track, oh, which I completely disagree with him. Right. But um, I just think it just goes to show uh, exactly how one person's meat can be another person's poison, really. You can never please everybody. No, and I've, I've always found that this version has, whereas I don't think it's as gritty or as it still touches on that psychedelic uh, atmosphere, there's a lot of space in there, which right. I really have I've, I've loved. Yeah. and. Uh, uh, and as, as a young guy, sort of just starting to get into music, mm-hmm. this track fascinated me. Yeah. yeah, the same for me. And this was, you know, because I wasn't listening to anything progressive. I didn't hear Genesis at this point, mm-hmm. um, or Yes, or any of the, you know, or even any psychedelic music. Sure. But this really, um, this really struck a chord with me when I was really young. Mm-hmm. And I think that's uh, telling that, you know, how... I easily I fell into the prog rock world mm, at right. such a young age as well. And I was like, this is really weird. I like this. <laughs> I want to hear more weird music like this. <laughs> yeah, me too. I, I love this version. I think mm-hmm. it's the power drums and, you know, the, the loudness and the... You, you can say it's anger, but it's not anger, obviously. It's, because it's, it's muscle to me. It's muscle. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. yeah, yeah, energy. So it, mm-hmm. I love it. There was one other thing which I wanted to mention, which is the fact that it's... Um, uh, a lot of people, uh, and I'm only looking at Tom here, uh, uh, miss the little thing that oh, happens yes. right at the very, very end of the albums, and, and you might not necessarily have heard it. Probably if you're a Phil, Phil Collins fan, you probably know this, but uh, right at the very end of the track, as it fades away, you can hear him singing 
um, the melody to Somewhere Over the... Well, he actually is singing Somewhere Over the Rainbow, Mm -hmm. uh, which apparently was in reference to the death of John Lennon. Uh, He'd he'd been killed, um, you know... Uh, less, I think it was less than a year previously. It was, it was in December of, of 1980. Oh, right. So, so yeah. there we are then in that case. Yeah. So it was very fresh in his mind. Yeah. And uh, uh, and I always think that was a, a, a lovely... And again, I mean, in all credit to Tom, who'd never heard it before, I it <laughs> took me many years for me to get it as well. Right. In fact, I don't think I heard it until the CD came out. Okay. And and it, it, obviously the background noise, the, the, right. the noise floor had been cleared up. And I went... Hey, that's really cool. Right. Oh, it's interesting. So I think it's it's nice when artists kind of throw little references into things like that. Or, you know, it doesn't even, not even knowing that it's maybe connected to uh, commemorating John Lennon, just knowing that, you know, oh, this is an interesting little snippet that he threw in here. You know, it's it's a reference. See, I I had just learned that today, just now. <laughs> um that the, what the reference was. I, for some reason, and I don't know where I picked this up, or maybe I dreamt it. Um, <laughs> I, I thought that was just um, one of the songs he used to warm up vocally, and they mm-hmm. just happened to be recording it and stuck it at the end. Maybe it was. So I didn't know it had an actual like mm-hmm. meaning. Now I feel shitty. But <laughs> I thought. Well, <laughs> well yeah. to defend to defend myself. <laughs> I, I grew up in a, a tiny house with lots of people in it. I had a crappy boombox cassette player, and so when this song ended, uh, my, at least when I I always blame the equipment. It's one of those where I think I probably assumed that the song was over, and I hit stop and yeah. moved on to other things. So when I heard it recently, it did strike us like a familiar chord. I'm like, I might have learned this, known this sure. at one point, but I remember emailing everyone saying oh my god you know at the end he's and you're like yeah duh <laughs> <laughs> exactly. crawling to my little hole now that's fine but it's a nice little yeah. uh, it's a nice little set i mean i probably answered my own question as to why he used it as the mm-hmm. the cover to be the last track on the album obviously from from what we're discussing here it might very just be a, a, a fitting tribute to, to yeah, john lennon yes, really yeah, sure. but um i just it was a lovely little Almost like there's an angel standing in the yeah, sun at the yeah, end of yeah. uh, at the end of uh, Los Endos, uh, and I I really love that. That's uh, you know mm-hmm. I, I think it attests to the fact that Phil is a very detailed orientated yes. artist. He loves he loves all those little bits right. that that you know that make up the structure of a song. Mm-hmm. We're we're kind of in almost the summation of the album part of this now, but. You know, it really, it, it, this is a nice capper to the entire album. I think that when we were finished listening to this last night and getting ready for this podcast, I felt like that was a complete album that I just heard. That was not just a collection of songs that happened to be released at the same time. Even though they're very diverse, it felt like, okay, that's that's the period at the end of the album, and we're done there. Now, on the demo, on the new re-release, there are kind of the new... Uh, demo releases of some of the tracks from that era, including two that ended up on Duke of Please Don't Ask and Misunderstanding. Um, did people listen to those and enjoy those? I did, actually, yeah. yeah. Um, I don't know about the rest of you guys. Yeah, yeah, I've, yeah. I've taken a listen to them. Yeah. They're interesting. <laughs> yeah. I... You, you, I, you kind of go back in time and put yourself in Mike and Tony's shoes listening mm-hmm. to them because you figured that's probably what they heard. Yeah, those were the two that they picked out, yeah. so... I think that's it's always interesting to hear these, you know, demo versions of what you're very familiar with and kind of say, oh, 
that's a, that's a nice little flavor to that. It's nice to get the roof is leaking with um, Eric Clapton on it to again, you know, compare and contrast what was released. But I find I find demos and things like that fascinating. Well, please don't ask. Is probably the one which really that's the one which displays, I think, the rawest wound yes. in, in Phil's psyche. Um, and uh, and again, it, it it brings me around to the fact that he really does live these lyrics. Yeah. Um, when when he's um, when he sings these songs, he's not reciting; he's reliving in some yeah. respects. That because you got to, you know, the lyrics have got to mean something. Right. And even when he does it on performs, please don't ask on the classic albums DVD on piano, he's still emotional at the end of that. Yeah, like it's still you know years later that he's singing this song that he had written and it still touches him that way and i think that's that's a tribute to the music and a tribute to his writing i, I don't it's interesting about misunderstanding i now i can't hear misunderstanding now without thinking of it's a genesis song hmm, right um but please don't ask i can definitely hear that that's a solo that could have been sure. on this album right i don't know why but it's part of me thinks that but uh i think you know i missed again is, is a much better fill track, for example, mm. than Misunderstanding. I think Misunderstanding, that was a great little right. uh, manoeuvre, if you will, mm. um, uh, to actually have that on, on Duke. Right. Like, you can hear that and be like, yeah, that works for Genesis. Yeah. That's a good, you know, yeah. kind of slice of life. It's know, definitely Genesis in the follow story. you, follow me kind of sort of like mm. uh, category of, of, uh, of, of single that Genesis would do well. I do miss that, you know, listening to this again and how good the remaster sounds, I do kind of wish that there had been, you know, the 5.1 mix of this just to open this up even wider because I think that with the layering of the arrangements on this album, it could, a 5.1 mix would serve it well. Not that again, the stereo mix is bad in any way because I think it's great the way it is, but I was hearing so many things with the re with the remaster where I was like, oh, that'd be cool if this was you know even wider on the sound stage with this, you know, play with the subwoofer a bit, put some of those weird sound effects in in uh, in the air tonight, kind of in the bat speakers going from left to right, left to right to left, you know, it'd be fascinating to hear that. Maybe but sometime. Maybe someday. I would Bill, love to hear that. are you still listening? Yes. Taking notes. <laughs> release, release the 5.1 there. So. One of the criticisms that I've seen about this uh, re-release is that the live tracks that are on the second disc, it doesn't give any context to where they were recorded. And then I've had that my, you know, same thought myself. I was like, oh, I'd love to know where Misunderstanding was recorded or where the version of In the Air Tonight was recorded. But I think didn't you have a theory, Mike, why that was Well, sometimes I think that, you know, I, just my very mediocre understanding of the music business sometimes is that, you know, if you use certain tracks from certain venues or any venue at all, you have to end up paying the venue. And so I think if it's uncredited, maybe you don't have to pay the venue, but I'm not, that's my very loose understanding or of, it's a you know it's a mix of different right it could be some different shows, places they, right. they, and they i figured these together. were from different years like i didn't right. think these were all yeah. from yeah like he had never played misunderstanding live i think until the farewell tour right. Right. so it's obviously not from the early 80s well this actually brings me around to uh when we're talking about summing up the album this is a, a very interesting album in the fact that speaking personally I don't really believe that this album is a glossy album. No, I don't think so. Uh, and I think the, the latest remix 
if anything, it punches up the edges. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, like the drums sound thunderous. Yes. The drums and bass on this are fantastic. Amazing. That's what I was saying earlier um, to Simon. It was like, all I hear when I listen to this album is vocals, drum, and bass. Yeah. Like, to me, that's just like, hits you over the head. Yeah. In a good way. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, it's, totally, it's, yeah. it's a clarity to it. And I think, you know, Nick Davis did the remasters with this, who's worked with Genesis for years and did the 5.1 mixes for them. And... Just, just, just did a great job with this, and I think that I actually really think I was not sold when I first heard about the the reshot cover artwork uh, of him presently. But once I saw it on this and the other re-releases, I'm like, this really does work. I think it attests to the fact that he had a vision for this album, mm-hmm. and as we were talking about off mic a little while ago, that um, as bands get older, they move away from creation towards curation right and i think that this is a beautiful example of a curated album an album that's been revisited Mm -hmm. and uh and he's reconnected with it in a way which i think has been fabulous that cover was i personally think a little stroke of genius yeah I, i once i saw it i was like yeah that really works i think it's fascinating that you know titling albums is I think has to be a tough thing because again, it's as Phil said in the interview with Dan Rather. Once you title something, that's what it's going to have forever. Yeah. And and again, this album, oftentimes you have titles that reference the lyrics or whatever, but there's no lyrics in here that mention face value at all. Are there? No. No. I think it's just him putting himself out there at at face value. This is what you get. This is what I am. Like literally, here's my face, and (laughs) this is this is me communicate connecting with you. I'm not. I'm not a flower mask. I'm not putting foam face paint. (laughs) I am. This is Phil Collins, and and this is like a theme he carried through. um, There's other solo albums. I think yeah, up up seriously, where it's just like you know cropped in on his face. And this is also because we have to compare and contrast them because they were both singers in Genesis. He and Peter Gabriel both always have their faces on their albums. Mm -hmm. Gabriel's is always hidden, except for so, kind of obliquely there in different ways. But Phil, again, is, is very direct in his approach putting himself right out there. So I think it's, it's again, comparing and contrasting two guys who... One's a chameleon. Yeah. And the other one's an everyday man, right. you know, that, that, that is... And I say that in the best possible way. I, yeah. I'm talking about a man that is, that is in this world as opposed to of this world, you know? <laughs> sure. Yeah, well, Gabriel, to me, he's, he's, he, he creates through, you know, his mind and his psyche, or mm-hmm. Phil creates through his gut and his heart. Right. And that's reflected in their cover, mm-hmm. al- you know, their album covers and the lyrics and even how they approach the music. I mean, even those moments of kind of that weird cerebral um, feel in face value, mm-hmm. it doesn't really, it's not as strong as it is in Gabriel's oh, course, and yeah. vice versa. Gabriel right. has some beautiful heartfelt moments, like here comes the flood, and mm-hmm. but he is more of that cerebral kind right. of weird, creepy thinking dark. About thinking about yeah. yeah, and and so that it's a, it's a beautiful balance. Yeah. I mean, it's no... And so in thinking of it that way, if you're going back, it makes total sense they're in a band together and they created something so unique. For me, everything came together, the stars aligned for this as someone's first album. It couldn't have happened to Phil any other way than it did like this. If the record company had come to him and said, we want a solo album from you, you wouldn't have anything like you do face value. It was him organically doing it first. And then the record company all of a sudden being aware of, oh, let's take that and put it out. Yeah. But if it had it happened forcefully, saying, all right, 
do this, we want an album, it, we wouldn't be here talking about I it today. You're right. I think that Arma Ertegun, who heads up Atlantic, uh, was a big champion of Phil at the time, yes. and I think gave him a lot of confidence and said, look, you know, I've heard what you've done. This could work really well. Right. You've, you know, I don't think he there was ever a sense of, of fingers on Phil's back being no, pushed no. to the uh, to to release now. But of course, the moment it it came, it was the right moment to birth. Right. You know, right. the album. Yeah. Arma Ertegun was was right there and said, you know, whatever you need, I'll do it because I I suspect. He knew both the band and Phil very well and knew that he oh, yeah. could create something which was And different. Genesis was on an upward trajectory, yeah. so it was kind of like, oh, you know, here's you've been front man now for five, six years, you know, maybe you're ready for this. Actually, at that point, it was really only four, you know, from yeah. 76 yeah. to 80, you know, but he had really That's, established yeah. himself as a presence. I never so. thought of that. Yeah, it was yeah. less than five years. Yeah, yeah so... So here in the re-releases, uh, Phil says, It's been many months since Face Value was first released in, within the air tonight, stealing much of its thunder. It still is. Well, hopefully it won't be anymore because right. this is such a gem, the album. It sure. has so many great songs that it's... Uh, it's yeah, I'm right. So yeah. go out there and get it. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> you will so, love it. Yeah. So with that, uh, what are our own personal favorite tracks on the al- favorite track on the album? Ellie? Hand in hand. Oh, good choice. All right. Simon? Uh, I'm going to go for the cover, Tomorrow Never Knows. Excellent. Um, there, my favorite track varies throughout the years and the days or whatever, however I'm right, feeling. Sure. I think there's, there's a lot of favorites on here for me. Um, but for the official poll, <laughs> I... Uh, I threw, um, I missed again against Tom's pole. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm surprised that I'm the only one who went with the song of the album, In the Air Tonight. I think it just encompasses everything that is Phil Mm -hmm. throughout his entire career. If there's one track that years from now you had to go back and say, all right, tell me what Phil Collins was about, you would play this track. I went with I Missed Again also, like Stacy, you know, because it's, I agreed with everything you said about In the Air Tonight, and I really thought about voting for that, but it was, but I felt like I was voting for that personally just because of the history of that being the track that I was so familiar with. Yeah, I let the seven-year-old vote. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) The seven-year-old stabby vote for that one. And I, I, when I sat, when I sat down to vote about this, I really kind of thought like, what's the song that, you know, without thinking about it, I think, oh yeah, that's like, that's my favorite on the album. And it came, it came down to, I missed a Dan or Rufus leaking. And... It was tough, and I went with the up song versus the more moody song. So, but perhaps it's time to reveal your polls now of what the audience voted for. Tom shows you his poll. So, one thing that surprised me about the poll was that one track did get the non coveted Legal Alien Goose Egg <laughs> Award. Uh, it wasn't the track I thought was going to get zero votes, which surprised me. Okay. We'll, we'll see that. We'll get that. All right. But I think the popular vote did go with 30% of the vote to In the Air Tonight. Okay, so well, that's that. that. Yeah, that's not surprising. Uh, down to 18% was Hand in Hand. So oh, Ellie. Oh, Ellie. Oh. Very good. And then you go down to 13% Roof is Leaking. Oh, okay. Because so yeah, that is a good song. That's yeah. a, it is. It really is. Yeah. Yeah. 
I go down now to 8%, you get If Leaving Me Is Easy. Okay. All right. There you go. And 7%, You Know What I Mean. Oh, so, so the sad songs The sad songs, the ballads. Yeah. Were it just goes to show there. that ballads are a very underrated commodity. Yeah, yeah. Sure. And in sixth place was a tie at 6% between I Missed Again and Tomorrow Never Knows. Oh, okay. okay. I really thought I Missed Again, which I would have chosen as my second, would have been higher up. Yeah, but sure. I guess people are in a love mood. And yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a breakup. Uh, or right, yes. <laughs> Coming in at seventh place with 4% was Behind the Lines. Okay. See, I thought that would be further up the list. That was my, that was a strong I second thought, for I me. I thought that cover would be higher than Tomorrow Never Knows. Yes. So. Uh, and tied with three percent each were This Must Be Love and I'm Not Moving, which <clears> I that's the th- song I thought was going to get the goose egg. One <clears> percent, uh, Someone Love Droned. Ooh. All right. Okay. Good for them. <laughs> Go droned. Yay. <laughs> and coming in at last place. Place with zero percent was Thunder and Lightning, which surprised me. I thought that would score. Wow. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I thought that would be more middle of the pack type of uh, track. So because I think it's been on a couple of the compilation best of type things, and it's, it's. I, I know I was critical of it, but it's still a good song too. So. And it has the ow. Of course, <laughs> ow. <laughs> well, that was fantastic. You know. I think it's it's. I'm really glad that we kind of examined this album and talked about it and talked about the start of Phil's real solo career because I, I again it was the start of the 1980s and Phil did own the 1980s so you know from the start to finish he had oh, solid music yeah exactly <laughs> so. I think he even said I was in your faces <laughs> right yeah so that a lot of value <laughs> exactly a lot of face value there so well thank you for spending some more time with us as we talked about this album we're going to bid you adieu and this is Mike Lord thanking you for listening. This is Ellie. Thank you all. This is Simon. Goodbye. This is Stacy. This is Tom leaving you. Is he? <laughs> we'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Tabletop Genesis. Archived episodes can be found at tabletopgenesis.com, along with updates, polls, and various other podcast-related news. You can also subscribe to the podcast on iTunes to have shows automatically downloaded to your computer when we post new episodes. To keep up with all the Tabletop Genesis activity, follow us on Twitter at Genesis Tabletop. You can like us on Facebook by searching for Tabletop Genesis, and you can email us directly at genesistabletop at gmail.com. Let us know what you think of the podcast or send us questions we can address on future episodes. Oh,